This morning's reading comes from page 299 of the Church Bibles and it starts with 1 Samuel, chapter 27, verse 1. But David thought to himself, One of these days I shall be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the six hundred men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favour in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns, that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory for a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites and the Amalekites. From ancient times these people had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle and donkeys and camels and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. When Achish asked where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremiel, or against the Negev of the Kenites. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, You must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. David said, Then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Achish replied, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much for reading that passage from 1 Samuel, for coping with all the, the names that are not familiar to us. Thank you so much. Um, my name's David Doherty. I'm a member of the staff team here at Bishop Hannington. And uh, this morning, we're continuing in a series of sermons based around the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, uh, the story of people like Samuel, the story of people like Saul, the story of people like David, who was to become the king of Israel. And like any part of God's word, we need help to make sense of it. So let's pray and let's ask God to help us understand what this passage of Scripture has to say to us today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, the Bible. Uh, thank you that it covers such a long period of history. Thank you that it covers such a wide range of human life and human experience. 
Heavenly Father, even though these events took place a very long time ago, Father, we pray that you would help us to make connections with our situation and our experience and learn from it. Amen. Amen. (coughs) I wonder if you ever have that feeling that history is repeating itself. Uh, I kind of had that feeling when I discovered what I'd be talking about this morning. If you've got long memories, you'll remember that the last time I actually spoke at a morning service was way back in January. We were looking at 1 Samuel chapter 21. And if you remember, it's the story of how David decided to go to Gath as a way of escaping Saul, the king of Israel, who was intent on killing him. And here I am again. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about David deciding to go to Gath in order to escape the king Saul, the king of Israel, who was intent on killing him. And for David, history is repeating itself. Here he is going back to Gath. If you remember back to 1 Samuel 21, you'll remember that that visit to Gath didn't go terribly well. Now this is not really surprising because Gath was a Philistine city. And not only were the Philistines the long-standing enemies of Israel, but Goliath, a Philistine champion whom David had killed earlier in his life, actually came from Gath. And, well, it's not surprising that the first visit to Gath didn't go terribly well. He was hardly persona grata. David's escape from that city at the time had been both humiliating and demeaning. And after that experience, it's a question worth asking, Why on earth would any sensible person try their luck there again? This incident from the life of David leads us to think about, well, perhaps at least three questions. And here is the first. Was David's plan to go back to Gath the right choice? Or was it the wrong choice? It's a key question, really, to making sense of this entire chapter. If you decide that David made the right choice, you'll obviously understand what follows in one way. If you conclude he made the wrong choice, well, obviously you'll come to a different set of conclusions. Was David's decision to return to Gath right or wrong? Wise or foolish? And as you read through the chapter, you don't get any help in making sense of that. At no point is there a verse that spells out what God thought of the decision. At no point in the story does a prophet conveniently turn up to confirm or to condemn David's decision. We have to figure it out for ourselves. But before we try and do that, there's perhaps one thing that we perhaps need to stay right at the start. The one thing that we need to note is that David at this time was under considerable pressure. The story of David in 1 Samuel is and I think most people agree with this, a great story. It's got everything. There's excitement, there's intrigue, battles, love, danger, narrow escapes. It's got the whole lot. In our culture, we tend to think back to, I don't know, stories about Robin Hood and the rest, and we romanticize the idea of being an outlaw. And we think it's a great story. The thing that we often forget is the truth is there was nothing romantic about the reality. There was nothing romantic in reality about being an outlaw. If you're an outlaw, you never, ever feel secure. You can never be sure if you can trust people. 
You're in constant fear of being betrayed by strangers and by your own followers. You're often cold and hungry. You have no home, you have no security, you have no certainty. You can make no long-term plans. And as we've seen in previous chapters, this was David's existence. Constantly on the run, constantly uncertain, constantly on the, on the edge. It may well make a great story, but the reality places intolerable pressure on real human beings. And we've seen that pressure break above the surface from time to time, haven't we? Like in chapter 25, when David was overcome by a disproportionate, murderous rage against Nabal, who hadn't treated him terribly well. The stress and strain of this hide-and-seek existence, with no end in view, well, it's understandable that it had worn David down. And so at the start of chapter 27, we find David taking stock of his situation and saying, in effect, you've been lucky so far, my friend, but sooner or later, Saul's going to get me. Look at verse 1. But David thought to himself, one of these days I shall be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel. Now, you have to agree it makes sense, but was it the right choice? Was it God's will for David to leave Israel and move into Philistine territory? Well, I don't believe that it was. I don't believe it was for several reasons. I mean, for a start, do you remember the first words of this chapter? But David thought to himself. David, in weighing up the situation, listened to himself and, and not to God. In fact, as we read through this entire chapter, uh, you may have noticed that there is not a single reference to God in it from beginning to end. There is certainly no reference, for instance, to David inquiring of God about the course of action he was about to take. And that should surprise us. Because if you remember the story of David, if you're familiar with the story of David, one thing you'll remember is that at other times, in chapter 23, for instance, and later in chapter 30, when faced by a big crisis, we're told that David specifically inquired of the Lord for guidance about the right way to respond. But not this time. This time, rather than to seek to listen to God, he listens to his own thoughts, his own fears, and he makes his own plans. But not only does he fail to listen to God, he also forgets what God has both done and said. He forgets, for instance, the time when God has rescued him from Saul. He forgets the time when David had Saul at his mercy and knew the strength of character to resist the temptation to do away with Saul when he had the opportunity. Not just once, but twice. Now, if David had remembered that, perhaps he would have realized that it should have been Saul saying, sooner or later, he's going to get me. Not David. But he seems to forget that. But not only does he forget what God has done, he also forgets what God has promised. That God had promised that David would be the king of Israel. 
He'd been anointed by Samuel under God's instructions to be the next king of Israel. Now, some really unlikely people knew this. For instance, Saul knew this. Right at the end of the previous chapter, Saul had said to David, May you be blessed, David, my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. Saul knew in his heart of hearts that David was going to be the next king of Israel. Saul's son, Jonathan, Saul's heir, Jonathan, knew that David was going to be the next king of Israel. Abigail, who we met in chapter 25, she knew that David was going to be the next king of Israel. In fact, everybody and anyone remembers that God has promised to David that he's going to be the next king of Israel, except David. If he'd remembered God's promise, he would realize that while things might be difficult, Saul was never going to get him. But perhaps most importantly, David forgets that God had already told him where he should be. Think back to chapter 22 and verse 5, and the prophet Gad, who had told David exactly where he should be, go into the land of Judah. Now Judah was part of Israel and the place where David had his roots. It was the right place for him to be both spiritually, in and amongst God's people, and also strategically. When the time came for him to take up the kingship, that's where he was based, and that's where his campaign to receive the kingship actually started. That's where David should have been. God's will was not just that David would escape Saul. It was that David would become the the king of Israel. And Judah was the base where David would achieve this. He was never going to achieve it from Gath. It was the wrong place completely. Right choice, wrong choice. I would suggest to you this morning that it was without any doubt the wrong choice. And you may have seen this in your own experience. In your own experience, there may be times when you've been faced with a choice and uh, the truth is that you've listened to your own fears. You've allowed them to become dominant to your thinking. Started forgetting things that are really important, like forgetting what God has done, forgetting what God has promised, forgetting what God has said. But you know, it strikes me that... um, At times, we don't always ask the the right choice, wrong choice question. The question we ask is, does it work? Does it seem to be a good choice? Does it seem to work for me? And we kind of assume that if it works, well, it probably was the right choice all along. So let's move and ask that second question. Was David's choice to move to Gath a good choice or a bad one? And on the face of things, it seems to be a brilliant choice. It seems to work perfectly. It seems to take all the boxes. I mean, you know, after a few weeks, a few months, David must have been congratulating himself on the brilliance of the choice that he has made. I mean, you see this as you work through the chapter. First of all, David and followers are welcomed by Achish, the king of Gath. The king of Gath seems to be delighted to see him gives him every facility to make him feel welcome. 
Now, that actually isn't quite as surprising as it sounds because at the time of David, it wasn't uncommon for displaced or outlawed or disaffected people to actually, in effect, sell themselves as mercenaries to some neighboring uh, king or warlord or whatever. So it wasn't so remarkable as it sounds, but nevertheless, it's going well, isn't it? But not only is David welcomed by Achish, the king of Gath, but his chief object in moving to Gath seems to be met completely. Look at verse 4. When, David was told that David, when Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Mission accomplished. Job done. Peace at last. And yet David seems to gain so much more than that because he also gains security, he gains safety, and he gains an awful lot of freedom. You will remember that in verse 5, Achish lets David move away from Achish's capital city in Gath. David is given the town of Ziklag, and he and his followers are are allowed to settle there. Now, Ziklag, it was a county town. That's the way it's described. That's probably a fair description of it. It was a small place. It was on the south of Philistine territory, a long way away from the Philistine heartland, a long way away from Achish. So that David, in being allowed to move to this town, well, for the first time in a long time, he and his followers had a settled existence. They weren't constantly on the run. They could go back to the same house every night. They were no longer living in caves. But in addition to that safety and that security and that sense of being settled, because they were a long way away from the uh, Philistine heartland, they had a lot of freedom to to do their own thing in a sense. A measure of independence from Achish. On the face of it, yes, it does seem to be a brilliant choice. But was it really a good one? There may have been short-term gains, but were there going to be long-term consequences? And the answer to that question is yes, there were serious long-term consequences, and they were not good ones at all. There were two of them. The first of all, was that David allowed himself to become morally compromised. You'll remember from our reading that once David had settled in Ziglag, he started mounting attacks on the Gezurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. Now, these were nomadic people who lived to the south of both the Philistine territory and to Israel. They were people who were historically enemies of both the Philistines and of Israel. They were a nomadic people. They lived in largely barren territory, And in order to keep body and soul together, their habit was to mount raids on Philistine territory, to mount raids on uh, Israeli's territory where there were more settled communities. And they were raiders, border raiders really. They would steal cattle, they would steal livestock, they would steal steal produce, uh, they would uh, steal people and take them into captivity, perhaps sell them as slaves. Uh, That was their lifestyle. And they were a constant threat a constant nuisance to the people who lived in Israel and to the people who lived in Philistine territory. What David was doing was he was protecting both Israel and the Philistine territory from the attacks of these different nomadic tribal people. And so far, you could say, so reasonable. The moral compromise came in two ways. First of all, you may have noticed that at the end of verse 9 we were told... Whenever David attacked an area, 
He did not leave a man or a woman alive and wondered how that could be morally justified. Well, let me save you the bother. It can't. Can't be justified morally. What David was doing was breaking the accepted conventions of war at the time. Now, I'm not saying it never happened, but the accepted practice at that time was that you might steal property, you might take people into captivity, perhaps to sell them as slaves, and I'm not condoning that, but you didn't engage in indiscriminate killing just for the sake of it. And if you want evidence of that, you only need to turn over a few pages in 1 Samuel to chapter 30 when we read of a time when the Amalekites attacked Ziglag when David and his men are away. Now, they have every reason to be vindictive, remember? David hasn't exactly been treating them well. Every reason to be vindictive. But what they did was they took captive the men, the women, and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. That was the normal conduct of war and raiding. David was breaking the rules. And the reason he was breaking the rules was because he was busily deceiving Achish for all he was worth. He was being dishonest and couldn't afford to leave witnesses behind him. You'll remember that David was described as deliberately giving Achish at best vague answers about what he was getting up to, about his raiding activities. Uh, So that whenever Achish asked him what he was up to, he'd say something, oh, you know, attack the Negev of Judah. Something that implied that he might have been attacking Israel. We know that that's how Achish understood it. But we can be sure that he was aiming to leave Machish, who, remember, had been remarkably good to him because, well, why did he make sure that there was nobody left alive to say what had really happened? David may be being clever and astute, if you like, but is he behaving honorably? Is he doing what is right? But as well as allowing himself to become morally compromised, he was also allowing himself to become manipulated. David may have had his plan, but Achish had his agenda as well. Look at verse 12. Achish said to himself, he has become so obnoxious to his own people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. Achish's strategy was to ensure that the Israelites would never, ever want David to be their king, to ensure that David would be trapped into being his subject forever. And David may have thought that he was leading Achish a marriage dance, but in actual fact, it was Achish who has the last laugh. Right at the beginning of chapter 28, the Philistines decide to go to war against Israel. And Achish says to David, you're my man, you're part of my army, Form up, we're going to Israel. And with thus, all David's plans and schemes come crashing down. He has allowed himself to be manipulated, and now he has been outmaneuvered. He is stuck. Make common cause with the Philistines against Israel, and you will never, ever be king of Israel. He's in a jam. You know, some people have suggested that David's response in verse 2 of chapter 28, then you will see for yourself about what your servant can do, 
is an ambiguous statement. Well, maybe. But to my eyes, those are the words of a man backed into a corner who doesn't know what to do and is hoping against hope that something will turn up. Good choice or bad choice? On the surface, it may have looked good, but in reality, it was disastrous. Comes back to our first question. David had made the wrong choice. And if you make the wrong choice, it's unlikely to end well. In the book of Proverbs, in chapter 14 and verse 12, there's a line that goes like this. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. And that is what David had discovered. Now, how can we avoid making similar mistakes in our lives, in our situation? Well, first of all, we can be careful when we feel desperate. As we go through life, we're bound to face times when, well, life is full of pressure. At work, in the family, perhaps some other situation. And there are going to be times when that pressure becomes extreme and desperation sets in. Now, in 1 Samuel, we have two examples of times when David had reached that point of desperation in chapter 21 and in chapter 27. In chapter 21, we have a situation where unexpected events lead to desperation and it results in panic. And David ends up in Gath. In chapter 27, we have a situation where ongoing pressure results in desperation. And it doesn't result in panic this time, it results in calculation. But the end result is the same. David ends up in Gath. If I go to Gath, Saul will stop chasing me. If I leave no survivors, Achash won't catch on to what I'm really up to. Whether it results in panic or calculation, it's all too easy for desperation to lead to wrong choices at both a human and a spiritual level. So when we're feeling desperate, be wary. Because it's an easy way to end up into making bad decisions. But secondly, let's be careful about what we say to ourselves. David's wrong choice begins when he thinks to himself. And we need to be careful about what we say to ourselves because, to be honest, we tend to believe ourselves more than anyone else, don't we? This part of 1 Samuel reminds us that it was when David started listening to himself, things went badly. When he listens to God, things go well, but when he listens to himself, they don't. He speaks to himself and leads himself astray. And if we turn that on its head, just think about what David could have said to himself. You know, one of the puzzles of this part of 1 Samuel is contrasting what we find here with what we find in the book of Psalms, many of which were written by David. Taking just one of the Psalms at random, Psalm 62 and verse 5, David says these words, Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from Him. David knew this was part of the problem that he didn't say it to himself when it really mattered, when he was in trouble, when he was under pressure, when he was facing difficulty, when life is difficult. Do we remind ourselves of our fears or do we remind ourselves of God's goodness and his promises? 
But over and above these warnings, how else can we avoid making bad choices? Very quickly, can I just mention five things? And believe me, they will be quick. Let's remember that God has given us a conscience. It's not perfect. It can be distorted by our past actions and the attitudes of those around us. But God's given it to us. And if our conscience makes us worried, at the very least, we should be thinking again. Secondly, God has given us a Bible. Now, you won't find an answer to every human problem in the pages of the Bible, but you will find principles and guidance that will help us avoid bad choices and help us to make good choices. We can remember that God has given us friends who can give us advice and counsel. Find one whose judgment you trust. Find one who knows you well enough to be honest with you and brave enough to tell you things you don't want to hear. We can remember that God has promised to give believers wisdom. Right at the beginning of the book of James, we are promised that if anyone lacks wisdom, they should ask God who gives generously to all without finding faults. And finally, remember that as Christians, we can trust in the work of the Holy Spirit working through all these means and more to help us make decisions and choices that are good and right. But there's one final thing to say about this incident in the life of David. Um, Because knowing how to make good and bad decisions is not much help if, like David, you've just made one. It's too late to turn the clock back. And that revolves around the question of human choices and divine choices. Now, one of the problems of preaching from the passage that I've been given up to verse 2 of chapter 28 is that it ends on a cliffhanger. It ends with David in a complete jam and the writer then moves on to talk about something else that was happening in Israel. Now, in a sense, this is deliberate because as we work through 1 Samuel, one of the things that we are contrasting is what's happening to David and what's happening to Saul. And one of the things that we learn from the rest of chapter 28 is that there were far worse things that David could have done than go to Gath. Chapters 27 and chapters 28 are all about the choices that human beings make, the confused motives and the flawed reasoning that lie behind them, and their sometimes disastrous consequences. If nothing else, this story tells us that David was normal. You know, sometimes we think that David is a heroic figure and completely different for us, and we just trail along in the wake. If nothing else, 1 Samuel tells us that David was just as weak and foolish and prone to make poor decisions as the rest of us. And that means that what happens next is relevant to us as well, because what resumes this situation is that as well as human choices, 1 Samuel also tells us about divine choices. It tells us about God's choices. As we read on in 1 Samuel, we will discover that in spite of his bad choices, in spite of his wrong choices, God stepped in yet again and rescued David. He rescued him not once, but twice from the consequences of the situation that he had got himself into. And the one thing that is absolutely clear in both cases is that in both cases, it was absolutely and completely down to God. 
David was stuck in a device of his own making. He couldn't get out of it, and it's God who chooses to rescue him. Wrongdoing and sin may have disastrous consequences, but it's not the ultimate disaster. The ultimate disaster is to reject God's gift of mercy and forgiveness. And David didn't make that mistake. The Psalms remind us that David, for all his failings, was someone who had come to a place in trust, a place of trust in God that was life-sustaining. And this gift of mercy and forgiveness is available to all of us because we're all like David. We all have the same problems, the same failings, we get ourselves into the same jams, and we have the same God who reaches out to us still with a promise of forgiveness and mercy and rescue. David is a hero. He does heroic things, and it would be easy to present David's story as the story of his wisdom and strength and virtue. But 1 Samuel doesn't let us get away with that. It's not a story of virtue and human strength and human wisdom. It's the story of God's wisdom, God's strength, God's grace. It was all down to God. And it's amazing. It's amazing grace that God chooses to work with any of us, to deliver us and to rescue us from the folly and the bad situations that we get ourselves into. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your graciousness to David. Thank you, despite his worst efforts, you reached out and you lifted him out of the situation he'd got himself into. Heavenly Father, we may not get ourselves into that sort of situation, but Lord, we do get ourselves into situations where we shouldn't be. Heavenly Father, Help us to turn to you for rescue. Amen.